Hoopball Podcast listeners. Are you a fantasy expert and want to write or podcast for Hoopball? Do you have aspirations of covering a team? Are you a master of sales and want to earn some cash on the phones? Well, we've got good news. Hoopball's recruiting. If you think you have what it takes, hit us up at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or by emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. Again, that's at Hoopball Fantasy on Twitter or emailing teamhoopball at hoop-ball.com. The following is a Hoopball presentation. Welcome to the Fantasy NBA Today podcast. Happy Monday, everybody. Welcome to another week of Fantasy NBA Today. I'm your host, Dan Bespris, and this is, as always, a hoop ball presentation. Hope you guys are enjoying the fact that we're playing around a little bit with some promos here, so maybe you don't have to listen to me lecture you about them during the middle of the podcast and generally forget what I was supposed to promo on a day-to-day basis. I, in general, in life, prefer not to work off of a list, prefer not to work off of handwritten lists. I think it kind of, it creates a weird stagnation on the show that I, I don't ever want. I like the idea of venturing into topics and then just sort of seeing where it takes us to some degree. Now, I I go into a show with a rough outline, and I have all my data and that type of stuff listed out in front of me, so I I don't want to sound like a moron. But when it comes to things like promos, I very rarely type up a promo list before I go on air. So it's kind of like, oh, right, yeah, that one hit me in the noggin at the 25-minute mark, and then we did it. Um, This takes that off of my plate, which is kind of nice. So I hope you guys are okay with that. That, I think, should be quick and easy. They're faster when I'm not rambling about them. And we're going to try that out for a little bit. Hoopball is hoop-ball.com at hoopballfantasy on Twitter. You guys know that already. You are the diehards generally at this point listening to fantasy basketball podcasts. I think we're all asking ourselves the same question. What are we doing here? We got a ways to go, but July 31st is not that far away. It's not that far away anymore. We're four weeks until we get into July, another three to the 27th, and then the end of that week we'll get a ballgame. So we're at seven and a half weeks, which makes sense considering last week I said we were at eight. So, you know, hashtag math. It's countdown. You know, it's countdown time. And this is one I didn't count up before we went on air. Remember, the NBA went down on March 11th, which was a Wednesday. So we are now one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 12 and a half weeks since the NBA had a ball game. So we've gone 12 and a half. We only have seven and a half left. That's easy, man. We're counting down to 20 weeks without NBA. We can make it. Over the weekend, there were little bits of NBA news that broke. Not, not Nothing really earth-shattering. In all, in in reality, um, the NBA is discussing whether or not the the eight teams that did not get invited to Orlando should have some sort of mini summer league or a bonus training camp because they would end up going nine months without playing any meaningful basketball games. And to be quite frank, I sort of don't care. Uh, there, I know there's other things in discussion about how that might go and frankly any extra basketball at this point I think is good slash fun basketball because we're so hoops deprived but I don't care what these eight teams do they're bad they're bad teams it would be a training camp and it would probably happen near when actual more meaningful basketball is happening so I I don't I can't bring myself to care about that The other story that broke early this morning, actually, sort of the end of the weekend here, first thing Monday morning, is that the NBA has discussed how replacement players might go. Because if someone has a positive coronavirus test, they're going to be quarantined for 14 weeks. 
And I don't know if they're going to be able to work out by themselves. They might feel so terrible that they can't, but you know, presumably there will be someone who has uh, COVID but is asymptomatic, so they feel like they could probably play by themselves. I guess that person could potentially stay in shape, but they're not going to let them back into the bubble or back with the team for at least 10 to 14 days, maybe more. So do these teams allow themselves to have replacements the way that they might during during a normal regular season where if somebody gets hurt, they might have a G League to pull people from or to sign free agents. And with the G League being officially canceled for the remainder of the season, which was a, sort of a foregone conclusion, but with that is now in the books and all, the, the NBA is discussing with teams how there will be probably a June 22nd transaction window. I'm using Woj's own words about this. Uh, Woj and Bobby Marks had a story together on this replacement player situation. And by the way, this this is also relevant if another injury happens. It doesn't have to be a, a coronavirus test. That's just the thing that's sort of in the front of everybody's mind. Teams will be allowed to convert two-way players into NBA contracts and sign eligible free agents for the rest of the season. When the rest of the season Eight games over about 16 days starting July 31st takes you into the middle of August. So there's about a month and a half, a little bit more than that, where teams can actually make some moves to their roster. Things had been relatively static. We also heard over the weekend that uh, Kyrie Irving and Kevin Durant have no plans to play for Brooklyn during these eight games or the playoffs. And that makes a ton of sense because KD hasn't played a basketball game in a year. It's an awful idea to try to throw him in and try to get him up to full bore. I mean, that's kind of how he blew out his Achilles last year anyway, is that he was dealing with a sore Achilles, and the playoffs happened, and he felt like he needed to play, and then kablamo. So the Nets, it seems like, will resign themselves to next year, and and that's a wise decision. We heard that the Magic probably won't have Jonathan Isaac or Al Farouk Aminu back, which is so incredibly whack, by the way. Not that it really matters to us because fantasy seasons are effectively done. I do have some additional thoughts on that in a minute here. But Jonathan Isaac's situation was supposed to be rectified pretty close to the end of the regular season. The thought there was that he might have a chance of coming back if Orlando made the playoffs or things you know were tight around April 15th-ish. And now we're going to be playing into August and he's not going to play? So I think the Magic can just come out and tell us that they're, they're just not going to let this dude go if there's anything even remotely wrong with him. And I get it. It's sort of weird circumstances because you try to ramp somebody up again who's been out for a long time. There's a risk of re-injury. But I look at this Magic team... And I, I struggle to see how they get significantly better unless they let Jonathan Isaac be a part of it. So what they've said here, and, and this is okay, this is okay. I just, for, for me, from a mental standpoint, I feel like this would be kind of upsetting to be on that team and have this decision made. What they're saying is, look, the future is more important than the present, even if the future is the same as the present. That's the impression I'm getting from Orlando. They're like, look, we're probably going to be a lower half team in the Eastern Conference playoffs for the foreseeable future. We have Vooch, who's good. We have Jonathan Isaac, who's up and coming. Aaron Gordon seems like maybe he's made some improvements to his game. I, I don't know how excited I can get about their backcourt. I know there's hope maybe that Markel Fultz will grow into something better. So that's a possibility. But there's just... The, the best teams in the NBA tend to have some sort of superstar or, or something that gets them over that hump. And I just, I don't know if Orlando has it. But this is not, the point here isn't really to pick on Orlando. The, pit, the point is if I'm on Orlando and I'm thinking this is my opportunity to maybe make a little playoff run, have some fun, I want my guy in there. If he can go, I'd want him in there unless they really think that he's at risk. But I mean... These teams are all going to have a month to get ready for the season. Whatever you want to call this season. And that brings me to my next point, which is, what do we do with this, this season? I have on good authority 
that Fantrax will be putting together a short fantasy league, basically like an eight-game Roto Mega Speed Fest type of season. And so the good folks over at Hoopball Headquarters will be likely putting together some fantasy information if you want to compete in some of those leagues. And we'll definitely have more information on that, probably via our interesting new promo ability here on the podcast as that becomes a little bit more clear. I also think that, and we've mentioned this a couple times in the last week or two, playoff leagues could be kind of fun as well. Normally, you know me, normally when that regular season ends, I shut the old brain off for a little bit. I shut her down. Because we've been grinding, grinding, grinding every day for six months trying to find the perfect fit on our fantasy teams and working with ROI and trades and these averages and all this stuff. And so when it all ends, you kind of need a breather. But this is a different scenario this year. We have, we're going to go 20 weeks without NBA of any kind. Your regular seasons were concluded before you and I and any of us wanted them to on March 11th. So let's have a little bit of fun. And I don't know if you need to put money on it. I, I think if you do make it something small, because with these eight games, it's going to be pretty weird. Uh, there are going to be guys that shut her down after a game or two, the teams that are right on the outside of the postseason. You're going to have teams like Memphis that are going to be scraping the whole way through. You're going to have teams in the middle of the playoffs that are fighting for seeding. So you might see their superstars go a little bit harder. There's just so many mitigating factors that to put on the line winnings that hopefully you guys were able to take home during our 80% abridged regular season seems a little bit bit cockeyed. But you could go with a smaller portion of that, maybe like a $20 league with 11 of your closest friends, and make it a roto league. Top two, top three, take home some funds. Maybe third place team gets their buy-in back. Just something to get those eight games worthwhile. In addition to the enjoyment of just watching them, I think it'll be fun to turn some fantasy to that. So we'll keep you posted on what we got going on over at Hoopball. Keep an eye on our our buddies over at Fantrax for what they're likely going to open up. And then playoff leagues, which we have plenty of time to talk about here. Playoffs won't start until, what, mid-August? A little bit more than halfway through the month. So we got lots of time before those. But they're fun as well. We'll talk about those when we get a a little bit closer to them. I don't know that I ever told you guys what was actually on the docket for today's podcast at the beginning of the show. But what is on the docket is more of our favorite free agent pickups of the 2019-2020 NBA campaign. In fact, on Friday's show, I think the last thing I said was, here's a terrible teaser for you. Our next free agent on the list is Evan Fournier who wasn't really a free agent. He was likely drafted at the very end of most drafts. I have him in a couple of places. You guys know I have a weird soft spot for Fournier. He has a little bit of an old man type of game because nobody pays attention to him on the Magic team we were just talking about. And we'll work our way forward from there. So we managed to get through four names on our Thursday show. Friday, we talked to our good buddy Steve Vidovich. On Thursday... Rashawn Holmes, Norman Powell, Davis Bertans, and Will Barton, who, again, these to call them free agents maybe is looping in too much. These are free agents or guys taken at the very end of drafts. Fournier had an ADP of around 130, which is relatively late by all accounts because, you know, we're talking about averages here. And he finished the season at number 68 on a per-game basis in nine-category leads. So by all accounts... It was a massive, massive success. A massive success. But now our job is to figure out where we go from here. Fournier finished this season with 19 points, 2.5 rebounds, 3.2 assists, 1.1 steals. I mean, basically one steal. 2.7 three-pointers, 47% from the field, and 82% at the free throw line. This was, and I said this during the season, this was the year from Fournier that we were hoping for the year before. Remember 2018 draft season, I said, oh, Fournier, put him put him on your chart as a guy to get towards the end of your draft. Nobody's paying attention to him. He's actually coming off a pretty good year. And then last season, he had this weird, horrific down year. Everything was just down. Percentages in all capacities were down. 
field goal percent was down, three-point percent was down, free throw percent was down. Actually, the only thing that was up last year was assists, was up a little bit. And so then this year, you get this weird bounce back that we probably could have seen coming because you sort of, you kind of press, you just press it a little bit on that one. This is a guy that's been 45% shooter and the previous year was at 46. Seemed like he was actually trending up in that department. So you figured the 43.8% from last season was likely to be leveled off by something better this year. Now, couple of things to note as we look at his season in review. 47% is a career high. I'm not counting the 43% he shot, or excuse me, 49% he shot his, his first year in the NBA when he was only taking four shots a game. That's not enough of a sample size. 47% is the best mark of his NBA career. 6.7 three-pointers attempted at 40.6%. Also, best marks in both, highest in total volume, Highest in makes and highest in percentage. Free throw percent at 82, I'm going to say that he could replicate that. He's at about an 81 percenter for his career, and that's including three seasons at the beginning of his career where he was shooting in the mid-70s. Last five years, he's been 80 percent or better. Last five years, he's been closer to 82 or 83. 2.6 rebounds, 3.2 assists, those are all easy to replicate. One steal per game, very easy to replicate. So what you're looking at as you as you gaze towards the future is is there anything that could pull Fournier away from what he was doing this year? What could get in his way? Money? No. He has a player option for $17 million next year. He's almost definitely going to take it, given the weird climate and the fact that teams just aren't going to have as much money in the post-COVID, no-one-in-the-arena, fewer-game regular season that we're dealing with right now. In that in this era, whatever this era is and however long it lasts, guys like Fournier are not going to be making $17 million like that. So then you look at what other guys on the team might be able to cut into what he's doing, and you say, well, what about a guy like Terrence Ross? Well, he kind of has his role at this point. Terrence Ross played 27 minutes a game this year, and he just comes off the bench and guns. I mean, that was the highest minutes total for him in basically four seasons, so I, I don't see that going up. And even if it did, it certainly wouldn't be a significant change. Ross comes in, fires three-pointers, gets a steal, and that's pretty much it on a super low percentage because almost all of his shots are from three-point land. I think they call him a flamethrower out there, but, boy, you'd like to see more of them go in. He might get better, but that's a discussion for a totally different day, the day that we talked about the Orlando Magic, which was what, like a month ago at this point. So looking at this roster, it feels like the only thing that could put a damper on Fournier is whether or not Markel Fultz ends up doing so much that he pulls away from other guys in the starting lineup. And I just don't see that as a possibility. They're very different types of players. Fultz, the idea that he would take over an offense that also has Vooch and Gordon... And, I mean, you can throw Fournier into that mix as well. And at some point down the line, Jonathan Isaac, I mean, he's the third, fourth best option at best. Probably, I mean, you want to call him tied? With Fournier? I doubt it. Offensively, Evan has sort of more things that he can do. I think they're expecting Fultz to be more of an orchestrator. He's also a guy with an interesting arrow pointed up because DJ Augustine's contract is up. So the only things I'm seeing with this Magic team are generally underappreciated fantasy assets who seemingly have more usage coming their way because Augustine is gone and everything else has basically stayed the same. Other than will Markel Fultz have higher usage next year? That's the only thing that you you could consider as will this change much? Like, are we going to talk about Mo Bamba or Aminu or even Jonathan Isaac who doesn't take that many shots? No, none of these guys are chipping in on the usage stuff. And despite all of the good stuff from Fournier this year, I don't think he's going to be drafted much higher than he was last year. Or earlier this year, whatever you want to call it. Can he shoot 47% again? That's the big, one big red question mark hanging over Evan Fournier. And I think the answer is probably no. 
Can he shoot 46%? Yeah. How far does that move him? Meh, not much. Even though the guys are clustered together pretty well, he goes from a top 70 to probably top 80. Top 85, top 90 at very worst. So this is a guy that's getting drafted after 100 again. You take him. Because as we've talked about before, the way that we isolate the guys that we want towards the end of our draft, and this is sort of like early end, maybe you get him at that 108 slot we talk about when teams finish up the ninth round of their draft and things get a little bit cockeyed. He's going to be playing enough minutes and taking enough shots where you can make a case that even though his fantasy ceiling, this was basically it, late 60s is probably as good as it gets, even though the ceiling is not that high, the floor is also very high. Unless he has a horrible shooting year, he'll just sort of plod his way along to decent fantasy value. Anybody that's in double digits for the entire season should be on a 12-team roster. That's a simple point. You could make you could make the argument that, Dan, you're, you're lumping in guys at like 99 or 98 that are effectively number 100 guys that float in and out on a day-to-day basis, and that's fine. So maybe we'll just make our lives easier and say anybody ranked inside the top 95 should be on a 12-team roster. No question. Don't throw weird small sample size stuff at me either, like Jabari Parker playing most of his games as a starter because John Collins was out, and then when he came back, Jabari got traded and didn't play anymore. I, I don't want... I don't want the exceptions that need nine qualifiers. If you look at everybody inside the top 95, they should be a starter on a 12-team roster. No question. Provided, again, situations are not changing, like an Alec Burks or something like that. There's there's, There's almost no argument to be made in the opposite direction. None. And I, to me, Evan Fournier is a guy that's going to be inside the top 95. Question, I guess, is where he gets drafted. Maybe not 130. Maybe he moves up towards 105, 110. But he still deserves to be rostered, and he still is probably going to go later than he should. My next guy on my favorite free agent pickups from this last year is OG Ananobi, who was drafted. His ADP was 138, and he finished at 72 and his arrow is pointed straight up with a steep slope. I am an ananobophile going into next year. I am, I am a fat ananobophile. And yes, making up words. I don't care. He averaged 11 points, 5.5 rebounds, 1.4 steals, 0.7 blocks this year while taking just 8.5 shots per game in 30 minutes per ball game. Guys. We know how Toronto likes to play their starters. This is a guy on a Toronto team that has Marc Gasol and Serge Ibaka coming off the, the, their contract sheet. And I think Rondé Hollis-Jefferson is coming off the sheet. I, there, there's no one left in the Toronto front court besides Pascal Siakam, which I realize is a big name in the front court, but there's literally no one else. He's competing with nobody right now for minutes between small forward and power forward. They may have to go small and play Van Vliet, Lowry, and Norman Powell as a three-man backcourt, but Ananobi probably moves into the power forward slot then. This is a guy who's very, to me, easily going to see his 30 minutes a game from this year trend up towards 32 or 33. These guys on Toronto play colossal minutes. And, moreover, he's going to have to do more on offense. His defense is fantastic. He gets you both defensive stats. We told you averaged over two combined defensive stats per game this year. That's, that is elite. It's not hyper elite, but it's elite. He's going to play more. He's going to do more. I love everything about Ananobi next year. And where this season... He finished at number 72. And I, I see a very real scenario where points, threes, rebounds, assists all go up next season. I don't know about steals and blocks. It's hard to, to grade those out. If he plays two or three extra minutes, you might not see them come up just because of effort level. But who knows? Maybe you do. 
51% shooting from the field. Uh, that one's a tough one to, to put all your eggs in. And then 69% free throw shooting. You probably see that improve as well. I've got to think that a guy who can shoot 38% from three-point land and 51% from the field is going to find a way to get over 70% at the foul line. To me, I don't know that any part of his game goes down season over season. So you're talking about a guy now that finished at 72, probably gets drafted later than that, and to me, probably finishes earlier than that. He was a great pickup this year. Toronto being hurt and him not being hurt certainly helped his outlook. His totals value was even better than his per game value. And I think he's going to be, I think he's going to be a, uh, maybe one of those second tier hype guys, or maybe he doesn't get the hype at all that he deserves because his non-defensive fantasy game is pretty quiet. He just happens to be really good in three of my four favorite categories. 0.7 blocks is excellent for a small forward. 1.4 steals is stellar for anybody. And 51% shooting is great for anyone, especially a small forward. You know I love defensive stats and percentages, and the only one of those he's not good at is free throws, but he doesn't take any. So yeah, he's shooting 69%. It's hurting you, but 1.4 per game. That's nothing. That's the same, actually, as Jaron Jackson Jr. shooting 74%, but taking three per game. Weighted averages, the magic of weighted averages. And I think that number goes up, probably. I don't know for sure, but we're sort of grading these things out and looking at the trajectory. Wish I had more of them this season. Frankly. Wish I had more Ananobi. Next player on our list actually happens to be the guy ranked right behind OG. And that's Nerlens Noel at number 73. And he was largely undrafted outside of hoop ball-centric leagues. He was among uh, Aaron Bruski's favorites this year. I took him in a couple of spots, hung on to him, I think, in one. I, it, was, it, it was touch and go at the beginning of the season. That was one of those spots where even I, who I think I'm one of the most patient preachers in the fantasy landscape... Even I ran out of patience because it was really unclear what the hell was going on. And the first two games of the season, Nerlens played four and a half minutes and seven minutes and then 14 minutes. And it was pretty questionable what the hell he was actually going to be doing. But if you held on to him for two and a half weeks, you were treated to a six block ball game. And then you probably didn't let go the rest of the way. There are days where it gets ugly as the backup center playing 20 minutes a ball game or less, 18 and a half when the season's done. Steven Adams missed more time this year and played through injury more than usual this year, and that allowed Nerlens Noel to capitalize with some huge ball games mixed in with a lot of okay or very quiet ones. So I know what you're saying, Dan. If we could have somehow isolated just the Steven Adams games when he's out, things would have been a lot, well pretty sweet. But Nerlens was actually right around the top 100 even in those games where he wasn't posting ultra juicy value. He's a free agent. And I have to believe that someone saw what he's been doing this year and will continue to do cuz you know OKC's going to play more and they're in the playoffs and sign him to do more than playing 18 minutes. I think he did enough to get a little bit more playing time. Frankly, I did enough. I thought he did enough to maybe get a new contract with OKC next year as a younger option at Big Man. Steven Adams has one more year on his contract, expiring $27.5 million deal, so you know they're going to be trying to unload him next year. There's this weird upside of what whoever the backup center is in Oklahoma City next season could shift into a very large-minute role. And if that's Nerlens, he goes nuts. Look at the games this year where Nerland's played more like 28 minutes. The, the Steven Adams missed games. 15 and 14 with two defensive stats. 24 minutes, 8 points, 3 boards, a steal, 6 blocks. 29 minutes, 14, 3, and 6 with 2 blocks. Pretty much any time you find him in the 23 or higher minute range, it's a monster effort. Steals and blocks. He averaged 2.5 combined defensive stats, 69% shooting from the field, 77% at the free throw line. 
the sky's the limit for this dude. He has a, a very Rashawn Holmesy feel to him as a big man that can get both defensive stats and percentages and only needs 18 minutes to be fantasy relevant. My fear with Nerlens Noel, who, again, we're talking about the best free agent or ultra-late draft picks from this year, but also trying to grade out what the future might hold. My fear is that if he does get signed by someone to be a starting-level center, the hype is going to go nuts. The hype will be out of control. So I don't know who... I don't know who precisely might be making that move, but if he goes back to Oklahoma City, then I think you've got something kind of neat where he's hanging out in the shadows behind Steven Adams, still getting enough playing time to be fantasy relevant, and then could be one of those guys that carries you to a title towards the end of the year next season. But we'll see where he ends up. Tough to make any blanket claims about that. Nemanja Bialica, again, again, somehow. We've made jokes about Bielitsa having a weird King's front court voodoo doll in the past, and it's starting to seem more and more like that might actually be true because last year he played in 77 games, averaged 23 minutes when it looked like he was going to get pushed out by Marvin Bagley. This year, he played 28 and a half minutes per game and played in 64 games before the season shut down, averaging 12 points, six and a half boards, three assists, two three-pointers, on 47 and a half shooting from the field and 82% at the free throw line. I, I just, every time it seemed like he was going to disappear, someone else got hurt. When this team is fully healthy, I can't, I cannot possibly think that he's going to have this kind of value. I just, I, I, uh, I'm not a firm believer in what he is as a basketball player, as a fantasy basketball player, he's been great. The Kings have him signed next year for $7 million, so you know we know where he's going to be. But if Bagley and Holmes and Giles and now Len and Barnes and all these guys, if they're actually healthy at the same time, I have no idea how Bielitsa clears 24 minutes a game. And unfortunately, he really does need to be on the floor for pretty long stretches because he's not a fast rebounder. He doesn't get rebounds at a super hot clip. He doesn't get defensive stats, which can kind of float you if the other stuff isn't going. I mean, he's not horrible on defensive stats, but it's nothing, it's nothing fantastic. He took nine and a half shots a game in 28 and a half minutes. If all of those guys are healthy, that's a number that comes down. And his percentages are pretty much league average so he's not really helping you or hurting you there. So if he's not on the floor a ton, I don't know how he I don't know how he helps. He's one of these weird guys that I just, you know, his fantasy game is quiet enough where usually he's the type of dude that we target. But I also think that his playing time gets shaved moving towards next year. And maybe we'll know here when the season comes back for these 8 games because the Kings should be largely healthy at that point. What does Nemanja Bialica get to do? They were playing, the Kings were playing some of the best basketball they'd played all year prior to the shutdown. And Bialica was uh, not really a top 100 guy during that stretch. And that was with Rashawn Holmes out, who was starting to come back, but had been out for most of that. And Bagley, who the hell knows what... So, uh, his... His situation scares me. His fantasy game doesn't, but his situation does. Two more names on the list. And these are some of my favorites because these guys were definitely free agents coming into the year. As we mentioned on Friday or Thursday's show, the guys on this list that were definitely free agents basically didn't get drafted anywhere. Norman Powell, Nemanja Bialica, Devontae Graham, and Daniel Tice. The guys on this list that were probably free agents in your league. Rashawn Holmes, Nerlens Noel. The guys that were probably drafted quite late, Davis Bertans, Will Barton, Evan Fournier, and OG Ananobi. So the reason I love these last two guys is that they were definitely not drafted in your 12-team league. Devontae Graham, who had a 
polarizing fantasy year, if only because some of his stuff was so intensely great. He played 35 minutes a game. He played in 63 of Charlotte's ball games, averaging a solid 18 points, three and a half three-pointers a game, seven and a half assists a game. He shot 82% on almost four free throw attempts per game. But he was the single worst field goal percent player in fantasy by weighted average in the entire NBA. No one in the NBA had a stronger negative impact on field goal percent than Devontae Graham. Which leads us towards two very important points. Number one, his season was so loud in the categories that people pay attention to. By the way, he was also not great in turnovers, although not horrific. He was so loud in categories that people pay attention to, with the scoring, the threes, the assists, that there's almost no way he doesn't get snapped up inside of the top 75 next year. There's almost no way. There's going to be too much hype around his name because, I mean, if he gets even a little bit better in either of those categories, people are going to... Well, I'm trying to think of a thing that people do that's safe for work to say on a podcast. You know what I was going to say, so I'm just not going to say it. At the same time, he shot 38%. I don't know how it gets any worse, he said while knocking on wood. Honestly, I've been saying that for the past five and a half months. 2020 got underway, and I just said, ah, could this year get any worse? And then, yeah, so maybe I should be a bit more careful. But how could 38% on 15 shots get any worse? He could get that to 39% and he'd move up 10 slots in the rankings. Because if you take someone who was as good as he was, he was elite in three-pointers, and he was elite in assists. Among the league leaders in those categories, all you have to do is partially eliminate the brutal anvil anchor that's just tied to his fantasy game, that field goal percent, and he floats way up in the water. Because he can get carried by those elite stats. You just have to not be that horrible in one thing. Don't be that horrible in one thing. Like, look look at some of the guys up towards the top of the, the charts that have one really bad category. Like, Andre Drummond is that horrible in free throws. You get rid of free throws, he's basically a first-round pick. But if you even partially get rid of that stuff, these guys rocket up the charts. So I'm at a weird crossroads on Devontae Graham, and I'll bring this to you all. He's a guy that's going to be shrouded in hype. Hype, he's going to be wearing a a hype cloak. He's going to be wearing a, a hype cape and flying through the hype air and getting drafted too early. And yet, I'm tempted. I'm tempted because... Guys with his fantasy game that fix their field goal percent are inside the top 50, and pretty easily. Who else in the NBA had numbers similar to Devontae Graham in his elite categories? Assists? He was very close to Kyle Lowry. In fact, a lot of his game was very close to Kyle Lowry this year. Let's pause and actually use that as a point of comparison. Kyle Lowry averaged 19.7 points. Devontae Graham was at 18.2. That's a difference of 1.2, or excuse me, 1.5 points per game. That's nothing. Almost negligible. Graham actually outshot Lowry from three-point line, three and a half to 2.9. Lowry out-rebounded him by one and a half. That is not insignificant. That's something. Almost the same in assists. Lowry by two-tenths of an assist. Lowry by... steals. That's, again, not insignificant. Outshot him at the free throw line as well. So they're not the same guy, but there are a lot of comparisons because Lowry was also a middling volume, very low field goal percent guy at 41.7. But what you can see here is that with slight tweaks, with slight boosts to things like steals and free throw percent, 
and rebounding. Yeah, he's a little bit better than him in those categories. But the big difference, the big difference from 38% to 42% from the field, where was Kyle Lowry ranked in nine category leagues this year? 19! Even if you dialed his steals down from 1.4 down to 1, that still keeps Lowry inside the top 30. So Devontae Graham has this crazy ability to shoot from top 80 to as high, I would say, there's a ceiling for him around the top 40, because I don't think he's going to add .4 assists a game. That's just not, I don't think that's going to be part of his growth. But he could easily get two-tenths or three-tenths of a rebound more or two-tenths of an assist, or maybe the free throw comes up a tiny bit more. Fine, all those little things, they're great. But if field goal percent goes up by three, or three and a half, which is what it would take to get to Lowry level, he jumps two to three rounds of value. So we'll start the campaign. Turn Devontae Graham into Kyle Lowry. Most amazing thing is that those guys probably won't get drafted all that far apart from one another next year. Even though Lowry beat him by 50 slots in fantasy this season. 58, actually. So it's weird. I, you guys know me. I always say, dodge the hype. Devontae Graham is going to have a ton of hype next year, and I kind of like it. Question is, how high does he go? If he starts getting drafted near the top 50, I can't, I can't pay that price. Because I think in all, in all likelihood, he finishes probably between 75 and 50. There's probably a 10% chance he gets into the 40s. There's probably more like a 20% chance that he finishes behind the top 75, like if something else drastic happens in Charlotte or nothing changes, basically. But the odds there, if you're if he's getting drafted at 50, you've wiped out the odds of him beating his ADP. Odds are he'll finish anywhere from 20 to 30 slots, probably anywhere from 10 to 25 slots behind that. And maybe he could go as much as 5 to 10 slots in front. So, the, unfortunately, the weight is on the back end there. And my guy, I got to do it. My last guy on the list of my favorite free agent pickups of the year and the guy that was helping all of my fantasy teams was Boston Celtics center Daniel Tice. And we just did our Boston breakdown show two weeks ago before we spent last week talking about other non-team stuff. And don't worry, we'll get back into the team breakdowns. We still have a few though, a few of those we'll do here over the next week or two. Daniel Tice finished right behind Devontae Graham at 78. Graham was 77. Graham was 77. Even though Devontae outscored him by nine, had three more three-pointers per game, six more assists per game, Far better free throw percent. But what did Tice do? Well, Tice was just good in a lot of stuff. We've talked about how useful it is to have a player who's just kind of good in a bunch of stuff. Love the blocks. Love the steals from a big man. Love the field goal percent. Frankly, love the free throw percent for a big man. Love the fact he never turns the ball over. 6.6 rebounds. I like trending up. The only thing I didn't like about Daniel Tice is that he only scored nine points a game, but you guys know how little I care about points. This is a guy, and and admittedly, Boston could alter course at a big man spot next year. There's no guarantee that he's the guy that's going to be their man, but they do have a $5 million team option on him for next year. He's actually His salary for next season isn't guaranteed until July 3rd, so he might get more information in about four weeks. My guess would be that they guarantee it because he was great. He won that center job, and he ran away with it. He ran away with it. And his canter faded. Robert Williams was never really going to be the guy. Tice was playing, and we talked about this again as recently as when we did the Boston breakdown. Tice was playing more at the end of the season. As the year went along, he was ramping higher. In fact, over their last 23 games, Tice was playing 27 minutes per ball game, and he was number 55 in fantasy. Right? I mean, we gotta be, we have to be clear about what we're discussing here. His numbers were pretty quiet, but trending up. 
This was a guy that basically didn't have a week outside of the top 90 once they turned most of the keys over to him. He was... He was outstanding. <laughs> I think you heard my kid yell out the word boring. That's part of a game he's playing. He's not talking about my podcast, I promise. He might be talking about the podcast. Daniel Tice is number 55. Basically, since the Celtics turned the keys over to him as their starting center. He is good. He is fantasy good. And as long as they don't make any key changes, he's going to get way underdrafted next year. We had a lot of Daniel Tice on our rosters. And here's the beauty part of all the guys we just talked about. Because with Tice, nothing even needs to change. Good steal rate, good block rate, good field goal percent, hits free throws, can score if they let him play enough to get some open looks because literally he's the only big man on the floor. And so he's going to get eight rebounds if they play him 28 minutes because there just aren't any other rebounders on that team. So to me, there's almost nothing to worry about if there are no, again, seismic shifts in who in roster makeup. So then we talk about all of these names, everybody on the list that we discussed on Thursday and then again today. The list of late draft picks and free agent pickups, and here's why I, I love this list so much. This is my favorite thing to go over, even more than the best draft picks, because uh, we're very cautious on draft day, so sometimes we'll get those guys, sometimes we won't. I'll tell you right now, Listen, I'm more than willing to admit my shortcomings. Because we are generally pretty careful with our draft picks, we don't usually have the best draft pick of the year. Like, we didn't have that much Hassan Whiteside, although I will continue to kick myself on that one. But we had a lot of Chris Pauls. We had a lot of Kyle Lowry's. Uh, we had some Jason Tatum's. We didn't have any Brandon Ingram's. What we do have, because we're generally pretty cautious on draft day, is a lot of small hits. We also tend to avoid the big misses on draft day. We might not get the one or two best picks, but we almost always avoid the worst picks. What we do get here on Fantasy NBA Today and with the sort of Bespris method of playing fantasy is we almost always get the good, super late draft picks and free agent pickups. This list that we just went through, you guys have been listening to the podcast for a long time. How many of those names sounded super familiar? Most of them, right? We had a lot of Rashawn Holmes. We had a lot of Norman Powell because everybody kept dropping him when he got hurt. We had some Will Bartons, more than most. We had a lot of Evan Fournier's. We had some Nerlens Noel's, a lot of Nemanja Bialitsa's, for better or worse. We had a lot of Daniel Tice's. A couple of Devontae Grahams. I admit, I waited probably one game too long on that one. Really, the only guys on this list that we didn't have a lot of were Davis Bertans. Because I admit, I didn't see his massive breakout coming. I didn't know everybody was going to get hurt at the same time, but I, it's a miss. And I didn't have many OJ Ananobis because I, I didn't really know how his game was going to translate if he saw more opportunity. And so I thought, you know what, I'm going to let this one slip by. But among this list, this is a list of 10 of my favorite and probably the guys who had some of the biggest jumps in ADP or, again, not drafted to where they finished. And we probably had... Six or seven of those guys on a lot of our rosters. That's stellar. We had a lot of Evan Fournier's we drafted late. We had some Will Bartons that we talked about. These are the late draft pick guys. Rashawn Holmes we drafted late. Nerlens Noel we drafted late. We picked up Tice. We picked up Powell. We picked up Bielitsa. This is how we get over the hump. And, and this is why the best first method is kind of an all-inclusive thing in that you have to do both. When I say you have to do both, here's what I mean. You have to, if you're going to draft somewhat cautiously, which we generally do, if you're following what we do on this show, if you're going to draft cautiously, what you've done there is you've created a very high floor for your fantasy team. You might not win your league on draft alone, but you're not going to lose it. You're going to be in the top half, at least, probably a little bit better. If you just draft cautiously and get good, but maybe not great picks for the first five or six rounds, and did nothing all year, you would almost definitely have a top half team in your league. Probably top four. Four or five. But there's injuries, so you kind of always have to be monitoring something. 
The way that we go from top four to top two is these pickups, the late draft picks and the pickups. Being on top of this stuff by watching games and making moves sometimes by halftime. Like a lot of our Daniel Tice decision-making was based on him having a couple of slightly better games, noticing the box score. No one else was making a move because his stuff was still pretty quiet, and then watching games. What's this guy doing? Well, he's in there when Boston wants... It's winning time. They want him in the ballgame. He's their guy. Norman Powell. We didn't give up on him just because guys came back because he actually played well after the team got healthy before he got hurt. It wasn't all injury. So we knew when he came back he was going to have a role. I admit, Norman Powell was not a guy I was a fan of the last couple of seasons, but he moved into a role, and you have to be willing to adjust. And so that, to me, is sort of the the whole package. If you're going to draft super risky, you might get those big hits, and then maybe you can just coast all year. Like, if you hit all of them, if you somehow ended up on a team that had Hassan Whiteside and Tatum and Paul and Lowry and Van Vliet and Ingram, and you got, let's like, six best draft picks, you probably don't have to do much the rest of the year. But most of us don't have all of those guys on a team. We might have a couple. We might get one or two of the honorable mention guys we talked about way back when. Middleton or Sabonis or Ubre or Valanchunas or TJ Warren. You might have a collection of these guys, but you need those free agents. You need those ultra-late draft picks to put your team over the top. In Roto. Talking about Roto here. Head-to-head is a different beast. You need games played. You need playoff schedule, all that other stuff. In Roto, if you hit some cautious draft picks and, and nail them, get a few good ones, don't worry about the big hits or the big whiffs. Just go for good. Get some free agents, throw them on your team. You're going to win. People overcomplicate fantasy basketball. They do. They overcomplicate it. If we pay close attention and we make the shrewd in-season moves after good draft, you're going to win. You're going to win most leagues. And if you don't win, you're going to win money. You're going to be in second place, probably. Third, maybe. People overcomplicate it. Maybe that should have been my last lesson learned of a fantasy season. Maybe we'll do a show this week on how to simplify. Simplify fantasy. Or maybe we save that until season's coming back. That'll do it for our Monday show. I'm Dan Bespris, at Dan Bespris on Twitter. This is Fantasy NBA Today, a hoop ball presentation back at you tomorrow. Hey, maybe we'll get back into the teams. I haven't decided yet. Either way, we'll talk to you then. This has been a hoop ball presentation.